Good morning. How are we doing, 11 o'clock? Oh. The, my. This section obviously slept in just a little bit longer, and it's paying off. Hey, well, if you're joining us for the first time, special welcome. Welcome to the party service, the 11 a.m. service. My name. Oh, it's going to get rowdy. We're going to have some fun. Hey, uh, my name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. As you walked in, you hopefully got the beautiful program that Patrick was talking about. If you would open that up one more time, inside that program is a message note sheet. That is a great tool to help you follow along the message, write down anything you want to remember, or draw a picture of me writing some type of mythical creature. There you go. Before we jump into our time of teaching, I'm going to go ahead and pray and uh, we'll get started. So let's pray. Jesus, as we've been in this journey through Ephesians, thank you that the recurring message we keep seeing over and over again is how loved we are by you. Jesus, thank you that you are a God that did not abandon us in our rebellion, but that fought for his creation, that restored us that set us on this epic path. You call us to live these epic lives, but you don't ask us to do it on our own. We walk in the light of our epic Savior. And so, Jesus, I pray that this morning as we open up your word, that me as the communicator, I pray that I become less. I pray that you become more. I pray that as we walk out of this building, wherever our day is going to take us, that we have a much bigger image of who you are, and we just know that you are passionate about your creation. Father, we love you so very much, and thank you for loving us. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Hey, so if you're here again for the first time, I just want to take a few minutes and bring you up to speed in the series we've been in. For the last couple of months, we've been in a series called Epic Living the Vision. Now, this series is actually the, two, it's actually the second in a two-part series as we've been looking at the New Testament letter written to the Ephesians. Now, this letter was written by a man that we call the Apostle Paul, and it was written about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul is writing this letter to Christ followers who are located in and around the area of a major city in the ancient Roman Empire, the city of Ephesus, which is located in what would now be Turkey. And so what Paul is doing is he's doing two things in his letter. The first thing in the first half of his letter, he is laying out God's epic vision for all of creation. He is laying out this vision that even though we were a rebellious race, that God still came into our lives and through his death and resurrection, he restored us, he redeemed us to live new lives and now he sets us on this epic mission. And so the second half of this letter, which has been the focus of this particular series, has been, has been, we've been looking at Paul as goes very practical. He's been taking this vision and now answering the question, how do we live this vision in the here and now? Or another way of saying it, how do we live God's vision for our lives in our everyday, in daily, everyday life? Because we've been called to live epic lives because we've been called to become more like our epic God. And so over these last few weeks in particular, we've been focused on a section in chapter five. Paul has been using many metaphors to contrast who we were before Jesus and who we now are because of Jesus. And so we've been in the latest metaphor of light and darkness. What the apostle tells us is that before we came to Jesus, we were darkness. 
Listen clearly. It does not say that we were in darkness. It says that the very core of our identity, everything about us was darkness. But because of Jesus coming into our lives, a very radical and supernatural change has happened to where Jesus' light has washed out the darkness and now our identity is that of light because of his light. And so the point of this metaphor is that if we are to continue living this epic life, The key to doing that is by continuing to walk in the light of Jesus. And so we're going to jump in and look at our scripture as it continues to paint this picture. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Epic Light in Darkness. If you've got your Bibles or your apps, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Now we've been intentionally as we've been looking at this metaphor of light and darkness, we've intentionally been jumping around a little bit out of order in this passage. So I'm going to take us back to the beginning. So we're going to start at Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 1. And starting in verse 1, the apostle writes, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So let's stop right there. And what we see immediately is we see a recurring theme of Ephesians, which is what your identity is now in Christ. See, before Jesus, we were darkness. That also meant that we were orphans. That also meant that we were damned because we had no future. But now, what is Paul saying? If you look back at verse one, who are we? We are dearly loved children. We are no longer orphaned, but we have been found and claimed. Not only have we been found and claimed, but whose children are we? We are the children of the king. And I like that phrasing that he uses as dearly loved children. God does not tolerate you. God does not think you're okay. God dearly cherishes you. And he goes on to describe in verse 2, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what brought us from darkness to light was the love of Jesus. That love has been poured into our lives and it has made us brand new. And now that we are new creations, we now live differently. We have a new purpose, we have new values, and we have a new set of ultimate priority. And Paul is reminding us of this as he gives us a charge. And if you look back at verse one, he started with that charge, follow God's example. Another way of saying that is the word imitate. In fact, I like how the word imitate sounds a little bit better. And there on your note sheet, I put a translation, the New Living Translation, I put its version of verse one, and it reads, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. 
If you remember, I was up here a few weeks ago and we were talking about the type of relationship we have with Jesus and that it's one of discipleship. And what's the goal of discipleship is to become more like Jesus. This theme of imitate Jesus is all throughout Paul's writings. He keeps listing out as we look at these virtues, imitate Jesus' integrity, imitate how Jesus handled anger, imitate how Jesus used his words. He continually goes back to that because that is the highest calling on our lives is to be a reflection of who Jesus is. We are called as dearly loved children to imitate our Father. Now, we do need to ask the question is, what is it specifically about Jesus we're supposed to imitate? Because there are aspects of God that are impossible for us to imitate. I cannot imitate God's ability to be all-knowing, even though sometimes I claim to. I cannot imitate the all-powerful nature of God. I can't do that, nor in Scripture am I ever asked to imitate those aspects of God. When we are called to imitate God, we are always called to imitate his character. We are called to imitate the character of God. See, many of these Ephesians were what we would call first-generation Christians, meaning when they gave their lives to Jesus, there was nobody around them that had been walking with Jesus to model what that looked like. And so what Paul is doing is he's pointing them to the ultimate example, to the life of Jesus himself. And so again, as he goes through these virtues that we've been looking at since chapter four, these character traits are who Jesus is. And that's been the focus of these metaphors that Paul has been using. So let's go on and let's look at chapter three, excuse me, at verse three. But among you, There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Now, this is what Mike has covered over these these last two weeks. And if you think about it, the reason why we're given those warnings is because that is the opposite of who Jesus is. We are called to reflect his character and by engaging in sexual immorality or in impurity or curse joking, we are not doing that. And so that leads us to the third thing he writes about, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So our focus, the charge we're given by Paul, is to not be a people driven by greed. Now, before we go any further, we need to stop and we need to acknowledge an honest temptation since we're a room full of adults. See, the temptation for a room full of adults is to hear this charge or to hear a teaching that says something akin to don't be greedy and to kind of just gloss over it very quickly. To kind of sit there and go, okay, don't be greedy, got it. Now let's get to the deeper stuff. And the reason why that's a temptation is we often equate don't be greedy with something we teach children. We envision Elmo or another puppet like that saying, don't be greedy, kids. And we often assume that we're adults. We get it. We're not greedy. There are two things that get my attention about this. The first, Paul is not writing to children. (laughs) The second thing that gets my attention is when the apostle repeats himself, 
It's because he wants to make sure his readers are crystal clear that this is a big deal. When you look at the whole of Paul's writings, he comes back to this warning of greed many times. In chapter four, just the chapter before us, he came back to this warning of greed. In just a few more verses, we're gonna see that he comes back to greed again. In his other writings, we're gonna see in Colossians a little bit later, again, he tackles greed. See, Paul's original audience was living in a culture very similar to the culture we live in now. That we kind of gloss over greed, but the reality is for many of us, our culture has taught us that greed is actually a virtue. Hey, greed will lead you to success. Step on people, leave bodies in your wake, it doesn't matter. So their culture, our cultural view of greed was very similar. And so Paul often writes about this because when we were in darkness, before we came to Jesus, greed was a big part of all of our lives. And Paul often writes about greed because he wants people to hear him very, very clearly about this, that greed is a very dangerous issue. And so on that note, let's dig a little deeper into this and let's try to understand greed from a biblical perspective. Why does the Bible warn so about, against greed so vehemently? How does the Bible view and define greed? Well, before we dig into that, we need to understand what our starting point is. So let me ask you rhetorically, when you think of the word greed or greedy, what do you think of? What comes to mind? What do you picture? Money, dollar signs, somebody like hoarding money in a vault or under a mattress. Do you know what I immediately think of? I think of the movie character Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street. And if you're familiar with that character, because he said a very famous line that kind of becomes the motto for many people, greed is good. But here's what's interesting. I'm willing to bet that a majority in this room, when we thought about greed, we thought about money, we thought about finances, we thought about stuff, right? But here's the problem with that. While greed does overflow into those areas, for many of us, that's where greed begins and ends. For many of us, greed is a single issue. It has to deal with materials and it has to deal with finances. Biblically, what we see in how their view of greed is that it is a much bigger issue that permeates many areas of our lives, not just finances. If you look at, back at verse 3, the word greed, the Greek word is a word called pleonexia, and that word translates to another word called coveting. Have you heard the word coveting before in Scripture? The Ten Commandments, Right? The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. So what do we see from scripture immediately? That this isn't just a New Testament problem. This has been a recurring problem as long as people have been in the picture. And what we see often in the entirety of scripture with them dealing with it is we see that they warn against greed and it leads us to a simple but profound definition of greed. Greed is desiring something so much that you're willing to sacrifice anything to get it. Greed is desiring something so much, you're willing to sacrifice anything to get it. You're willing to sacrifice finances or good financial decisions. That's the thing we all understand, right? But greed could also lead us to sacrifice relationships, lead us to sacrifice marriages 
or relationship with our kids or friendships or relationships with our coworkers or with our church because there's something we want and nothing's gonna get in the way. Greed can often lead us to sacrifice our integrity, to sacrifice our morals, the standard by which we live because we think, well, maybe that's gonna be better, so I'm gonna do something that I know is wrong, that is clearly wrong, but you know what? I'm, I'm gonna do it anyways because I'm greedy towards it. See, when you look at that definition, do you see how greed can permeate many areas, not just finances? Greed is what drives a parent to lie about how good their kids are so that they give the right impressions to other people and make people think that they're perfect. Greed is what drives an employee to do whatever it takes to climb the corporate ladder, to undercut people, to make, un to make unlawful decisions because that's gonna lead them to the bigger office. Greed is what, to, is what drives someone to make a poor financial decision and to get massively into debt to have multiple boats or to have the toys or the perception that they are succeeding. Greed is what drives someone who's been wronged to throw integrity and morality out the window, to gossip, to destroy another person because all they want to do is get revenge. Many different examples, but what's the common denominator? Greed. We're starting to see that this is a deadly issue. And in fact, it's such a deadly issue that Paul describes greed in Colossians by using one word that's a bombshell, especially to his original readers. And I put it there on your note sheet. I'd like to turn to Colossians 3.5 and look at how he defined greed. In Colossians 3.5, he writes, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Underline that word. Put a box around that word. See, to Paul's original audience, by saying that word, he just dropped a bombshell on them. And he's not doing it for shock treatment. He's doing it because it is the truth. See, these were people that were growing up in a culture and a society where it was very commonplace to see them bowing before statues. And that's often our image of idolatry is in this very Indiana Jones and Temple of the Doom status where you're bowing before something. And Paul is flipping the switch and going, idolatry starts internally. Idolatry starts in your heart. Idolatry is when you make something that is not Jesus, God of your life. And the root of that is greed. I like how Timothy Keller puts it. It's there in your note sheets. What is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can. We bow before our idols because we seek fulfillment and we seek salvation. We bow before these things that are not Jesus to seek what only Jesus can give us. And the warning that Paul is giving us is whenever we bow before a counterfeit God, whenever we put God-sized hopes and expectations on anything that is not God, it will always blow up in our faces. Idolatry is often driven by greed. And that drives us away from Jesus.
Go back to Ephesians, and let's jump down to verse 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. Again, there it is again. Paul wants you to be very clear on what it means to be greedy. Such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The kingdom of God is reserved for people that worship the one true God. If you have another God in your life, then you are not going to receive the gifts that Jesus has for you. And the root of all that, again, is greed. Now, what I like about Paul's tone is this is obviously a powerful statement, isn't it? This is obviously a powerful truth, and it really kind of stops us in our tracks. But what I don't want you to miss is I don't want you to miss the apostle's tone. Paul is not doing this in a way to wag a finger in your face going, you greedy person, how dare you? You are letting Jesus down. Paul is making a powerful statement to contrast who you were, not who you now are because of Jesus. What Paul is doing is he's laying out the core truth of our lives is that before Jesus, you were a greedy idolater with no future, but now now, because of Jesus, you are freed and restored to worship the one true God, and you have hope in this life and the next. And so the message Paul is saying is, why would you go back when you've experienced something truly great and even greater things await? That's why Paul teaches vehemently about greed. Don't go back. Remember what it was like. That didn't get us anywhere. Go forward, go into the light. Because then if you jump to verse eight, which has been the core of this little mini-series, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That is your identity. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Or if you remember the Greek word for that is walk as children of the light. So much of darkness is rooted in greed. But Paul tells us that that doesn't have to be our story because of the light in Jesus in our lives. And so Paul paints a very comprehensive deaf picture of greed, doesn't he? He paints a deep picture of the dangers of it. So let's continue to unpack this a little bit more. So there in your note sheet, there's a section titled Greed, Two Truths. And we see that the reason why Paul often talks about greed is he doesn't want us to go back. And one of the tools he uses is he reminds us that greed comes with a steep price. There are significant consequences for letting greed rule in our lives. So based on what Paul is teaching us, let's look at two of those consequences or two things that happen when we give into greed. So the first villain is this. Greed is the opposite of Jesus' character. Greed is the opposite of Jesus' character. Again, I mentioned this before, when we were teaching on discipleship, we talked about the truth that there is no higher calling on our lives than to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. 
There is no higher calling in our lives than to be disciples. And so Paul is often giving us charges and he's calling the church individually and collectively to be Christ followers that embrace the character of God and not be Christ followers that fake the character of God. There is a massive difference between that. Embracing the character of God means you take it seriously. It means you understand you're imperfect and you're gonna have temptations and you're gonna stumble and fall, but it still means your pursuit is of him and of the light. Faking it is talking a good game. Is saying the right words to say to the right people, knowing the right time to say amen or hallelujah, knowing the right time to nod, knowing the phrases, I'll be praying for you, I was so blessed, yes, that was good, and walking out of a place by this and having none of it backed up by your life. Amen. (laughs) And let me let you in on a little secret. We sinfully pride ourselves as being a people that are great at faking many things in life. We are exceedingly bad at faking our commitment to Christ. Because when we fake it, people can tell. As good as we think we are, we are not good at hiding that this isn't genuine in our lives. Let me illustrate this. I'm a parent of two young kids, and I feel like every day I'm learning new and new lessons about how to be a better parent. And one of these profound lessons happened this past week at the dinner table. Um, I learned that it is exceedingly hard to fake that you to fake liking a food that you absolutely hate to try to get your kids to eat it. Parents, have you, have you had to try to go through that struggle? So we're sitting at the dinner table, and my wife and I have very, very different eating habits. And if you look at her, she looks great, and she's healthy, and I'm going to die soon. So there's a reason <laughs> she's obviously winning at this. And so she made an awesome dinner, and on my son, my three-year-old son plate, there's uh, sautéed mushrooms. Now, immediately, I cringe. I think mushrooms are of the Antichrist. I do not <laughs> like mushrooms. Now, okay. Now, let me defend myself here. Some of you know me. You're like, we're the donut guy. Yes, but there are actually some vegetables in this world I really do like. Mushrooms are fungus. You you throw away food that has grown fungus on it, yet we eat, I'm not team mushroom. I never will be. And so my wife blessed me by not putting mushrooms on my plate, but they're on my son's plate, and he's never seen this before. And immediately he turns and looks at me. He's like, Daddy, what is this? And I put my head down. I'm not trying to make eye contact with him. (laughs) And Megan, my wife, jumps in immediately. She's like, oh, Gabriel, they're mushrooms. She's like very cheery. Mushrooms, they're good. He doesn't even acknowledge her. He doesn't even move. His eyes are glued on me, and he asks again, Daddy, what is this? (laughs) And so I'm having a crisis of faith in my head. Like, I don't... I don't want to lie to my child, so I'm sitting there like, what do I say? Okay, just say the line. Like, they're mushrooms. You should try them. So I don't even lift my head. I'm not looking at me now. I'm like, Gabriel, they're mushrooms. You should. I didn't even get through the sentence. I'm like, you should. I don't. It gets silent, and then Gabriel, without missing a beat, yeah, I don't like this. <laughs> and then I make eye contact with them. Like, you know what, son? You made a really good choice. But what's, what's the point of that story? I couldn't fake it, right? I tried. 
I couldn't fake it. But that's meant to illustrate that there's many areas in our lives we try to fake it. We try to fake being excited about things we're not excited about. We try to fake having knowledge about things we are completely uneducated about. But especially in our faith, there's many of us that try to fake a walk with Jesus and it does not work. Paul is calling us to embrace his character, to embrace discipleship, to embrace the pursuit of him, not to fake it. See, faking it is not compatible with a Christ follower. We cannot be an angry, bitter, pessimistic, unforgiving, flies off the handle at a moment's notice person and then turn around and go, oh, and I love Jesus. We cannot be someone who is the definition of the lack of integrity, who will lie, who will cheat, who will steal, who will undercut, who will gossip, who will talk bad about other people and then turn around and go, oh, and I love Jesus. And Paul is saying, we cannot be a people that say, I love Jesus and are driven by greed because in all of those examples, there is one word to describe those people and that's hypocrites. And that is what the world expects out of us because that is the message we've given them. Because man, we talk a big game. But often are we backing it up with our lives? And it's not about backing it up with perfection. It's not about backing it up with knowledge about everything. But it's about taking Paul's charge seriously He asks us as Christ followers to take seriously the pursuit and transformation into the character of Jesus because that is what an unbelieving world will find unbelievable is somebody who claims to love Jesus and is actually living by that standard. See, it's the opposite of Jesus because when we let greed control us, We care little about becoming like Jesus because we feel like we don't need him as God in our lives because greed turns us into the God of our universe. And that begins in the heart. And so that first fill-in was looking at an internal issue, but the second fill-in is gonna look at the overflow of that and how that affects externally. And the second fill-in is this. Greed is a heart issue with a wide impact. If we were to use the metaphor of a disease, if we look at greed as being a disease and we're patient zero, it starts in our hearts. We've been redeemed by Jesus, we've been bought through grace, but as Mike has often said, as long as we're on this side of heaven, we're still gonna feel a tug and a pull to the darkness, to sin. And so if we're patient zero, then what greed is trying to do is greed is trying to infect, greed is trying to sicken, and ultimately greed is trying to destroy the good in our lives. And to sum up, what does greed want to destroy? Our relationships. If you've been with us on this journey through Ephesians, you've seen how relational God is. 
You've seen that we were restored. We were bought through his death and resurrection. We were restored into relationship with him. And after we've been restored into relationship with Jesus, what's the first thing he gives us is relationship now with church, with community, with our brothers and sisters. We have been restored back into relationship and the end game of greed is to destroy the relationships which God has restored. God has restored us to be in relationships built on the foundation of love God and love other people. Greed wants us to approach relationship with God doesn't matter, other people don't matter, you matter the most, you want what you want when you want it and get it. Greed is trying to build us in the mindset of living life with an American idol mindset, meaning that We show our worth, we show how good we are by destroying the people around us and showing them how much better we are than them. That's what greed does, is it destroys our relationships. That's the reality of greed. And so what I wanna do, because this is such a big part of Paul's heart in this teaching, is I wanna unpack that a little bit more. I wanna dig into how greed affects different areas in our relational lives, but also the difference Jesus makes in those very same areas. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Reality of Greed, and the fill-in is this, greed causes significant damage in our relationships. What we've seen often over these metaphors that Paul is using is that Paul does a lot of contrasting who you were and now who you are. And the reason why he does that is because the apostle knows that education is a very powerful tool. There have been many of us that at many different junctures in our lives, we were educated on something we were doing or taking part of that was bad for us that we didn't know that we didn't realize it. And now when we've been educated on it, we're like, you know, I wanna make some different decisions. I wanna do better. I think of, I grew up watching I Love Lucy, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. And what's something that all the characters do multiple times throughout the episode is they're smoking. And often behind them, when they're out at dinner or something, you have these signs promoting cigarettes that says four out of five doctors say, this is the best brand of cigarettes ever. And as science has progressed, as people took pictures and saw what was happening, they're like, ah, it may not be the best thing to recommend. See how education was a tool? Paul is using that as he contrasts it. In a sense, he uses the BC and AD of our lives. If you're familiar with those terms, that tends to be how we divide history. BC was everything that came before Jesus. AD, year of our Lord, is everything that occurred from the point of Jesus coming into this world and afterwards. And we have those same, uh, those same denotations in our lives. You have a BC. You now live in your AD. And so Paul is often contrasting, not so you dwell on what the BC was, but so you realize how big the act of salvation was and you realize how great living in the light is now. And so looking at greed and contrasting greed with Jesus, I want to look at three core areas in our lives. And so you're going to look at your notion, you're going to see there's three fill-ins. If you would do me a favor, under each of those fill-ins, would you just draw a line in the middle? Because it's visually going to be easier if we make boxes. And so the left box you're going to make is the before Jesus, the BC. The right box is the change that Jesus brings. So let's start with the first fill-in. The first fill-in is material. 
the material world, the stuff. Before Jesus, how did greed teach us to view the material world? Greed taught us that having the stuff, having the status, or at least having the perception that we were successful, that is what would bring us our identity and our value. See, greed in the material world teaches us that if we have the right job, if we look the right way, if we dress the right way, if we have the right family, if we have the right house, if we live in the right part of town, if we have the right friends, if we have the right hobbies, and we could go on and on. If we check off all of these cultural success boxes, then I will finally have value and purpose in the eyes of people. And the tragedy of what greed does in the material world is that it devalues ourself, ourselves. It tells us you have no worth until you've accomplished all those things. And even then, you only have worth if you maintain that standard and don't lose all of that. That's the tragedy of greed is we devalue ourselves, but it also overflows into us devaluing other people. Because now if other people are not hitting that standard, standard we're trying to reach, then they're less than. They're not the right race. They're not the right socioeconomic status. They don't have the right friends. They don't have the right education. Oh, looks like you didn't make it. I'm sorry, but I'm better than you. That's the lie of greed. The stuff, the status becomes God because we are seeking salvation and fulfillment from it. It's an idol. In Matthew chapter 19, a rich man comes up to Jesus and he was somebody who talked a good game when it came to religion. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit heaven? And Jesus said, you must follow the commandments. And Jesus never says that in a way, oh, just follow these arbitrary rules, but the heart of the commandments is loving God and obeying him. And so this young man took it as just following rules. Oh, I got it. Let me paraphrase for our context. I go to church. I nod along. You know, it's like, I I say amen. I got it. I'm doing the right thing. And then Jesus added one more thing. Okay, well, you need to go and sell everything you have. Now, Jesus is not making a blanket indictment about having stuff. But the reason why he called it out to this young man is because that was his idol. That was his God. He prided himself on the fact that he had much and he was better than. And Jesus called him out on his idol and told him, you need to remove this so you can experience even greater things. And what did he do? He walked away. Because greed had convinced him to follow after a counterfeit God rather than the Jesus right in front of him. But now let's move to the box to the right. How does Jesus change our view of the material world? What happens when Jesus removes us from greed in that? What we discover is that we always have been, that we are, and we always will be a people that find eternal value, purpose, and worth in the blood of Jesus Christ. That whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or you're out of work, whether you have much or have little, whether it's easy to pay the bills or it's a struggle, 
You all have eternal worth, the highest value as dearly loved children in the eyes of Jesus. And no matter what were to change in your material world, your worth never will. And when Jesus moves us into the AD in the material world, do you know what it also does to the actual things in our lives? We no longer see them as bondage, as that which will bring us salvation, but we're freed to see them as blessings and as ways to bless other people. We're free to see things like money or time or a home-cooked meal or offering a ride, or a couch for somebody to sit on, or doing yard work for a neighbor. We're pressed to see these materials, these things we have, as ways that we can use it to show people that Jesus loves them. So do you see a big difference in that? In the material world, that's a difference between greed and Jesus. Let's move on to the second one. The second fill-in, this one's gonna get fun, is emotional. The emotional world. Greed, so starting on that box on the left, the BC, greed makes us emotionally unhealthy people. And being emotionally unhealthy is going to torpedo just about every relationship we have. Now, this is a very big issue, and I don't have the time to really dig into it. So quickly, what I want to do is I want to show two common ways in which greed shows our emotional unhealth. The first one is this. Greed makes us impulsive. When there's a crossroads or a decision right in front of our face, rather than seeking Jesus, rather than seeking wise counsel, rather than letting Jesus be king of our lives, we need to make the decision that's in front of us right then because it feels right. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand because I'm not going to put anybody on the spot, but I can admit this in my life. Have you ever made a decision, an impulsive decision that blew up in your face, but at the time it felt like the absolute right thing to do? Isn't that confusing when you're like, but my heart told me it was right, but what's in your heart? Greed. The second thing that greed makes us emotionally healthy in is outrage. Seems like every day is a race for somebody to be outraged, isn't it? And it's not even that people are getting outraged, but it's the fact that we are now a race that are outraged about everything. I was talking to my wife about this last week. I have very much just really stopped going on Facebook. And you know why personally I've done that? I'm just tired of how angry people are. And they're angry about everything. And even if it's something I may agree with, I'm like, the way this is coming across is not a discussion, it's outreach. See, a few weeks ago, actually more than that, Mike taught on anger. And if you weren't here, let me encourage you, get the podcast, watch the video on rockypeak.org because that was a fantastic word that he gave. But to sum it up briefly, when we learn to do anger in a healthy way, what we start to see anger as is an opportunity to seek understanding and an opportunity to seek forgiveness, to give forgiveness and reconciliation. See, greed turns anger into the opposite. Greed turns anger into war. 
And so what greed wants us to do is instead of an opportunity to reconcile, it wants to turn anger into an opportunity to shame and destroy. But not just that. Do you know what greed does in our outrage? It causes us to compromise our integrity because we are willing to do whatever it takes to win the war. When we let greed rule our anger, because what do we want in our greed? We just want that person to suffer. And so when we let greed rule our outrage, then what happens is we start justifying it under a righteous anger, and we start letting that give us permission to sin in other areas. So we want that person to suffer, so we start gossiping. We start telling them, we start burning them to anybody that listened to us all over social media. This person is the devil. I can't believe they did that. We start lying in our words. We start using blanket statements like never, you never do this, you never do that. And in many cases, that may not be accurate. We start believing half-truths and embracing half-truths that admittedly, a lot of us know are half-truths, but the half we see is supporting our viewpoint, and so I want to win the war. We start quitting instead of fighting for relationships. I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to quit on this family. I'm going to quit on this friendship. I'm going to quit on this church. I'm going to quit with Jesus. Because greed wants to destroy relationships. But what does Jesus do? What's the AD of this? See, When we are filled up with God's love, we are filled up with the example of Jesus. See, one amazing thing about learning how to live like Jesus did is we now have his emotional example. Being a growing, mature Christ follower is not about ignoring our emotions. That's never what we've been called to. Jesus did not ignore his emotions, but Jesus set a model of emotional health for us. And now because of that, we have the ability to do emotional life his way instead of the greedy way. And so if you look at those two examples we talked about, I'm always admittedly gonna have a draw to be a speed addict when it comes to impulsivity. But because of Jesus in my life, because of the character of what I know about Jesus, I know that he always wants what's best for me. And so even though I wanna move fast, I know the best thing is to go to Jesus because he's rooting louder and harder for me than anybody else ever could. And I want his wisdom on this. When it comes to outrage, it's not about not being angry. We will get angry, but the hope is that now because of Jesus, that our anger and outrage drives us back to Jesus first. That we are raw and honest with him about why we're upset. That we allow him to speak into that and that Jesus gives us the supernatural ability and that's what it is to do what he's called us to do which is love our enemies. Doesn't that sound so tough to do? And it would be on our own but we can do it on his supernatural strength. So you see the difference in the emotional world? The greedy way of handling emotions and the way of walking emotionally in the light. And now the last one is the spiritual world. I've mentioned this a few times already. Greed leads us to believe that we are the God of our universe, doesn't it? And you know what I realized? Greed leads us to sound like supervillains from a comic book. And what I mean by that is if you're familiar with any type of supervillain, what's their end game? 
if I can mold the world in my image, then it will be perfect. What does greed lead us to do? To, how does greed lead us to view the spiritual world? If everybody else had my opinions, had my values, had my priorities, had my style, had my sense of everything, then the world would be a perfect place because I am incapable of wrong at all times. That's what greed does, is it turns us into the God of our universe. But let's contrast that with the AD. What does Jesus do? In the spiritual world, Jesus leads us to an amazing discovery. He is God, I am not, and that's the best possible situation. Because what do we discover when we give our lives to Jesus? That he actually knows what he's doing. That he truly does love us. That he truly does have a plan and a purpose. That he truly does have the intelligence and the brilliance to lead me to greatness I could have never dreamed of. See, in the spiritual world, when we come to Jesus we experience for the first time a word that we only talked about before, and that's the word joy. Joy. So this is what it's like to truly be alive. This is what it's like to live life passionately and with hope by being under the authority of our perfect king. See, the point of this whole section is summed up in one simple truth. Greed destroys our relationships, but the light of Jesus causes all of our relationships to thrive. Greed destroys, but Jesus brings life, relational life, and they thrive. And so, as we not only just wrap up this teaching on greed, but as we wrap up this whole section on this metaphor, there in your notes, Jesus, I just have one final question to ask you. As you reflect on your life, as you think about the words of the apostle, the words of scripture, the question I want to ask you is, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in your light? And one meaning to that, are you examining your life? Are you identifying idols? And then are you allowing Jesus to come and be that wrecking ball and destroy them and replace them with his presence and love? Because that is the only way to truly destroy an idol is through the power of Jesus. Again, I like how Tim Keller put it. It's there on your note sheet. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit guts. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. Are you walking in the light? Because as basic as this truth is, but yet it doesn't mean it's any less profound, light eradicates darkness. And again, if you look back at Paul's words in verse eight, for you were once darkness, but now you are light. Again, I hope you sense that this is an encouragement and a motivational charge that he's sending out. This is who you were, but be passionate and excited because this is who you are and this is who you will be. And so take this charge, not as one of guilt, but as one of hope and as one of excitement that you can do this in the power of Jesus, burn brighter.
I like to illustrate it like this. Uh, many of you know that me and Patrick, who's up here earlier, we do DJing on the side. We DJ a lot for a corporate events. And we've been doing this for the last couple of years. And one thing that's unique is we get sent out to a wide variety of like different corporations and businesses to DJ for. And they're all very different groups of people. So part of the skill we need to apply is we need to learn how to perform and how to play for those audiences. Now, however... One thing I've learned is you need, every audience is different, but there's a short list of songs that seem to be universal. There's a short list of songs that no matter what your audience is, whether they're 10 years old or 72 years old or whatever, that if you play this song, something miraculous happens. That everybody in the vicinity, they start smiling. From your anti-party staunch like, nah, person, to somebody who wants to have fun but is just nervous about it, to the woo people that are always dancing no matter what, <laughs> you're, gonna, <laughs> you're gonna have, if you play one of these songs, for example, one of these songs, one of my favorite songs of all time is I Want You Back by the Jackson Five. Now you're all gonna listen to it as you drive home, you're welcome, as I play that. But the reason I bring this up is that when we play one of these songs, no matter where anybody is, no matter what their mind is, this is always a motivator for something to come and do something awesome. Even if it's just for that one song, they come out of the woodwork and go, yeah, this is awesome, I wanna do this. In the same vein, this is Paul's metaphor. You were once darkness, but man, you are now light. Let's burn brighter because you've experienced greatness and because of Jesus, even more greatness awaits. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship band to come back out, and we're going to conclude our time with a couple more songs. And in particular, we're going to sing a song called, right now called Give Me Jesus. And I want to encourage us as a church, both individually and collectively, let us be a commitment that as we say this song, as we sing these words, give me Jesus, let us be a commitment that we're going to be a people that when we walk out of this building, our lives are going to back up the words we just sang. So let's pray. Father, you know, sometimes, Jesus, when I think about my life, Father, I wonder, what do you see in me? <laughs> I feel like I'm just constantly messing up and letting you down. But then I read your precious word. I read the words of the Apostle Paul and I realize what you see in me is your son, Jesus. You see that Jesus paid the price, paid the debt for sin on my behalf, that he took up residence in our lives, that because of Jesus living in us, we are not damned sinners living in darkness because we are darkness, but we are found children of God living in his light. And so, Father, as a church, we pray that we take this charge seriously, that we take the character of Jesus seriously, that we continue to grow, to reflect, to show people that Jesus is real, Jesus has changed my life and he wants to change yours and he's so real that I've committed my life to this. That as imperfect as we are, <laughs> we're not gonna be judged on our perfection but on the Jesus that lives in us. And so as we sing these songs, Lord, let it be more than just words. Let it be a commitment. Let it be a battle cry for us as a church. In your son's name we said, amen.
Let's stand and worship together. Hey, so as we leave, wherever your day takes us, takes you, wherever your week, month, or year takes you, let us leave here as Christ followers that are committed to embracing the character of Jesus in our lives. Let us leave this place as Christ followers who are committed to rooting out greed and idols, but are committed to experience more of the greatness that is Jesus, amen? If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right, um, alongside that wall is our prayer ministry. There are some awesome men and women there that would love to pray with you before you leave. Um, Next week, I hope you can be here to join us. We're going to be coming out of this metaphor and continuing in Ephesians, and Paul is going to begin to unpack a pretty core question for our lives. How does a Christ follower be intentional about discovering the will of God in their lives? And that's a key question many of us have asked many, many times. And so we're going to start unpacking that next week. So hope to see you then.